Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. I've taught you a lot that, um, or many times, I guess I should say, uh, that Mourner's Kaddish actually grew out of a practice of Kaddish that was said at the end of study. So when people would study, there is a Kaddish that is called Kaddish de Rabbanan, the Kaddish of the rabbis, rabbis, of course, meaning teacher. So there was a Kaddish that was said um, asking for blessings for teachers and their students and the students of the students um, and for the whole house of Israel to support Torah learning and houses of uh, of learning. Um, and so th- then what would happen is people would teach Torah because one of the greatest ways to honor someone's memory is to teach Torah in their memory. So if someone died, you would sponsor a, a lesson of Torah, of learning in someone's memory. That That is what led to then Mourner's Kaddish, because now you're tying someone's memory to the to the recitation of Kaddish de Rabbanan, and eventually it morphs into saying Kaddish just for the deceased without a session of learning. Um, and it becomes incorporated into the liturgy and into the prayer book. So it has been traditional to teach uh, in memory uh, of someone who has died. Yesterday, uh, the 29-year-old son of Steve and Jane Gomer died um, suddenly. He uh, was fine. He was vaccinated, boosted, and got COVID, was doing okay, and then had trouble breathing, and called his mom, and she said, call 911. This is not something you want to take a chance with. So he called 911 and died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital of an apparent heart attack. Um, they don't know what caused the heart attack, um, but as you can imagine, it was an incredible shock. Um, so they are reeling from that and dealing with that. Jane and Steve just arrived. They live in New York now. Um, their daughter, Sarah, is a member of the congregation. Uh, Steve was a member of the board, and many of us were very close with Steve, um, who, you know, did so much for our community. An incredible director of our shows, and he, he is a director, he's a film and TV director. Um, so, and this is on top of the loss of David Sharif, uh, two weeks ago, 24 years old, um, died of a massive seizure. So we, we just as a community are holding these tragic deaths, these tragic losses, um, it's just horrifying, um, but we, this is what we're here for. This is what we're here for, is to be here when the unthinkable, the unspeakable happens. Um, and so we will surround Steve and Jane um, and Sarah, uh, support them through what are going to be agonizing next days. and next. Um, So we will teach and learn and engage today in honor of Jesse Gomer, um, who was an incredible human being and the biggest teddy bear of a guy you'd ever want to meet. And um, he and his sister were very close. So um, it's going to be a long haul for Sarah. And I'm, in, I'm incredibly glad that she has those to be part of this community on her own. Because um, I feel like it is appropriate that as we are um, remembering Jesse and studying Torah in his honor that we're actually in this text It's not a very exciting text. The idea that the text represents is, however, uh, exciting. Um, And I spent some time on Jesse's Facebook page just because I didn't know what else to do with myself yesterday when I heard. Um, 
And it was Karen Shapiro who called to tell us because Steve Gomer called her because they're close. So, you know, it was like the mother of David Sharif calls to tell me about the death of. So, um, so I spent some time on his Facebook page and um, Jesse was just unflinching and being willing to face injustice and took pictures of that and incredible photographs that just show his perspective and what he chose to pay attention to and look at in the world. And, and, and right. The next picture would be this incredible picture of nature, right? This incredible close up of something in nature. And, and I'm like, okay, so I want to hold those images, right? The ones of just persons in humanity to person um, and the ways that we perpetuate a society that, that is unjust and unequal and his incredible eye for beauty in terms of nature. I want us to hold those two, you know, ways of looking at things as we look at this morning's Torah text, because I think they are uh, apropos of our text. We are studying the laws that are meant to recalibrate and balance out society. So we are in um, the part of Leviticus that is talking about um, what happens uh, for the land and what happens um, for the land and people every uh, 50 years. So we are, we are talking about Yovel. We're talking about ju- the Jubilee. Um, so Yovel happens just as we're counting seven weeks of seven days to get from Pesach to Shavuot, from Pesach redemption to revelation. So we have a counting of seven sets of seven years, 49 years. The year after the 49th year, the 50th year is Yovel. Um, and so it is, you're, you are to proclaim Dror, uh, liberty throughout the land, which means all land reverts to the original owner and uh, people are who are in indentured servitude are freed. So that is what Torah is dealing with in this part of Leviticus. And we'll begin at uh, chapter 25, verse 29. If any party sells a dwelling house In a walled city, it may be redeemed until a year has elapsed since its sale. The redemption period shall be a year. So we are talking about ways that people lose their property. So Torah is trying to reverse the awful circumstances that would lead people in an agricultural society to be landless. Because you can imagine if you're dependent on the land, you can imagine what that would mean for farmers to not have land. And so there's, there's all these uh, complicated laws around redemption, geulah. So who is supposed to redeem property? If someone loses their property, a relative is supposed to redeem it. It's supposed to serve as a goel, as a redeemer. Um, and so we're getting laws here. These are property laws about how, until how long can a house in a walled city be redeemed by someone? And we're being told until a year has elapsed since its sale. What What is the redemption process? I don't know. I know the word. I don't know. But I'm not sure what it means. Well, it means you have to buy it back. Oh, buy it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the process by which they would come forward as a But that, but that does mean but buy it's it to, back. But it's to purchase it back or to purchase a person back, right? If someone is sold into indentured servitude, they are supposed to have a relative who comes and 
redeems them, um, who serves again as a goel, as a as a redeemer. If it is not redeemed before a full year has elapsed, the house in the walled city shall pass to the purchaser beyond reclaim throughout the ages. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. So here we're getting some exceptions um, to the law of Yovel. But houses and villages that have no encircling walls shall be classed as open country. They may be redeemed and they shall be released through the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levi, the houses and the cities it holds, Levi shall forever have the right of redemption, right? So the Levites are different, and their claim to the property is different than every other Israelite tribe. Such property may, as may be redeemed from Levi, houses sold in a city it holds shall be released through the Jubilee, for the houses in the cities of Levi, or of Levi are its holding among the Israelites. But the unenclosed land about its cities cannot be sold, for that is its holding for all time. If your kin, so here we go. Here's another way that people right get in trouble. If your kin being in straits come under your authority and are held by you as though resident aliens, let them live by your side. Do not exact advance or accrued interest but fear your God, let your kin live by your side as such. So these are relatives who come into incredibly difficult financial situations. You are supposed to welcome them and take them into your household and have them live beside you um, the same way as your family. You're not supposed to treat them differently um, just because they are now destitute. You can't charge them rent. Exactly. Or if you're helping them out, you can't charge them interest. Um, do not lend your money at advance interest, nor give your food at accrued interest, right? So you can't charge room and board, um, and you can't charge interest on what you're, you're using your money to help them. I, Yudhevafe, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. So don't forget, y'all. Don't forget. All y'all were slaves. All y'all. And the only reason you aren't, you yourself aren't, is because I took you out of Egypt. It wasn't earned. You didn't deserve it. It's a gift. And therefore, when somebody comes into your care because they are destitute and now they're dependent, you will not use that against them. You will treat them with decency and respect. Does kinsmen here refer to just your immediate family or all Israelites? Or? It's not all Israelites. Um, I don't think it would be it's, extended. Your extended, it's your extended family. family, right? Your clan, essentially. If your kin under your under you continue in straits and must be given over to you, do not subject them to the treatment of a slave. So they are now becoming an indentured servant, meaning they cannot feed themselves. They've not been able to get up on their feet. You've tried to help them. They can't make it on their own. There's nowhere for them to go. They're going to be staying with you. It's not fair to ask an Israelite to do that forever, to take in a third cousin twice removed and feed them and their family forever. They become indentured servants. So their labor is their payment for, right, for being in your care. However, Torah says, you will not treat them as a slave. There's a difference between the status of a slave and the status of an indentured servant. Remaining with you as a hired or bound laborer, they shall serve with you only until the Jubilee year. So they are to be considered a bound laborer, um, and they are free at the Jubilee year. 
then then they along with any children shall be free of your authority they shall go back to their family and return to the ancestral holding because everything gets reset at the jubilee they may have lost everything but when jubilee comes they will get their property back presumably it depends it depends where you are it could be two years it could be 47 years for they are my servants whom I freed from the land of Egypt they may not give themselves over into servitude the english is not great here i don't love it because you miss you miss all the hebrew about eved which is slave and y'all, right y'all were they they like y'all were my avadim they were my workers right whom i freed from egypt and they may not give themselves over then into the status that i redeemed them from they don't get to do that i freed them they don't get right to go back to that status you shall not rule over them ruthlessly you shall fear your god such male and female slaves as you may have it is from the nations round about you that may, that you may acquire male and female slaves. So people are going to say, "Wait a minute. What do you mean I can't make them a slave? Everyone has slaves." Right. It's it's clarifying. Slaves come from non-Hebrew, non-Israelite nations that you go to war with. You can take their yes, you can take prisoners, you can take booty from other peoples. So the the question is how do we justify that God who doesn't allow Israelites to be slaves and if God runs the whole show how come God doesn't say nobody can be slaves um so the good news is I don't have to justify it <laughs> it just is what it is no, it's, it's a system it's a slavery i get that it, we're not allowed to rule over them ruthlessly there are many there are many laws that are that are designed to prevent the slave from being treated so um it, it no it, the implication is not okay you can't you can't rule ruthlessly over israelites but you can rule ruthlessly over um someone else i think also um getting into um translation issues right so it, it's that you, it's really that you shall not cause a hebrew to suffer the indignity of slavery correct that's why you can't cuz i freed them i freed them so so they're not allowed to be slaves anymore because well what we think god thought about that we don't know god freed them and punished the egyptians so i find it hard to believe right that that it was approved of by torah but we but we are dealing with the writers of these texts live in a world where there is just not a possibility of no slavery. So it's so then it's like okay, well what do you do with that? If there is slavery as an institution, how do you deal with that? In ancient Israel, we don't have to like it. In ancient Israel, it was like okay, well you you can take as slaves uh folks from the nations that you go to war with. You cannot take a Hebrew um as a slave. Also we we tend when we think of slavery think we of tend American to think slavery. of American slavery which was slavery without any bounds and particularly terrible and the slavery here is a different kind of structure I think part of what Tor is trying to do is to set boundaries around it the people who held slaves in the United States clearly had no boundaries so when you hear the word slavery don't necessarily think of the 
Yeah, don't right, think of the exactly American right. South. They did have boundaries available to them had they chosen to interpret these texts that way. However, they chose to interpret them in many cases very differently. Um, finding in Torah um, uh, support, right, defense for having um, the system of slavery, which is not the intention um, of the writers. The writers are here to mitigate the reality of slavery that is made necessary by the conditions of of the world and by society. Yes, so Eved Adonai, servant of God, is the same word, which is what you miss in English, um, which is why it's 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 more impactful in Hebrew because there's no difference between the word servant and servant, right? An Ebed Adonai, a servant of God, is the same word for slave, for worker, for servant. Avodah, work, is also the word for service, like what we do in there. I'm going to services. That word is the same in English. Services on Friday night is the same word as I'm in service to Judith Ubik to clean her house, right? It's it's the same word, and and you just you kind of lose it in the in the translations here. Um, and and the other thing uh, is that slavery was considered to be inevitable. Injustice to slaves was not considered inevitable, right? You know, to treat them horribly was absolutely outside the bounds of Torah. So these laws are being written by slave-holding Israelites who Torah is coming to legislate a little bit um, about what you are not allowed to do. It took an industrial revolution to abolish slavery, says Barry. Before that, material scarcity meant you either enslave or you are enslaved. That's a, a, a really, really good way to put it, Barry. That's a really good way to put it. So the other thing to remember is that we tend to think of this being a world without slavery. And it is not by any stretch of the imagination. If you believe Rabbi Stephen Carr Rubin, which I tend to, um, there are more slaves in the world now than ever before in human history. So if we think about everyone who's being trafficked, you know, everyone who's being sold, the child brides, that is slavery. When you marry someone off because your family doesn't have money in Afghanistan and you marry off your eight-year-old to a 37-year-old man, that is slavery. She is purchased by a family for their son from another family. She has absolutely zero say in what happens to her. And it happens in the U.S., absolutely. And um, people, and boys too, I mean, there's just more human trafficking than ever before in human history. So we like also to think we live in a world where this is no longer the system and this has been abolished. And again, I'm not trying to defend it. I just want to be fair in saying this at least says, here's how you cannot exploit them if they're if they're your slave. There is no such thing for that eight-year-old. She's exploited. <laughs> you know, all these people who are told they're going to get a job in this country and they're put in you know, carrier crates, you know, and then brought here and then are, are slaves. There's no laws protecting them. There's absolutely no recourse for those people. Um, and so Torah is at least trying to be honest about, we know there are slaves, like Barry said, if, if, you, if there's material scarcity, you either starve 
or you become a servant of, at some level, or if there's war and you lose, right? That's, that's how it goes. Um, but there are laws, even for slaves who are captured in war, there are laws about how to defend against, right? Our, our baser inclinations about how we might treat someone who doesn't have power. And I guess that's the thing I respect in this whole thing that's awful (laughs) and the universe that's awful that leads us to sell children into slavery still today because of the inequities that lead people to be starving and feel like that they have no other options um, when we are rolling in wealth and abundance um, is that that, that Torah is trying to, to, to be fair and clear that it's unjust, and then looking towards a time where that whole thing is reset. And that even, because Torah Torah is at least honest and clear that we are not angels. And I respect that. Torah is saying, y'all, we don't pretend that we're a people who if someone comes into our care or into our charge, Torah doesn't pretend, well, of course you're not going to exploit them. We're Israelites. We're Jews. We would never do that. Torah's very clear. We don't need these laws for people who would never do this. We need these laws because Torah says, we know what you're going to do because you're human beings. And we're no different than other human beings, right, um, in terms of our, our baser instincts. So, again, it's distressing, but here it is. You may buy children from among alien residents among you or from their families that are among you whom they begot in your land. These shall become your property. You may keep them as possession for your children after you, for them to inherit as property for all time. Such you may treat as slaves. But as for your Israelite kin, no one, here we go again with this, shall rule ruthlessly over uh, another. Um, and Barry, if you want to add anything about the Hebrew here, um, I just I just don't love the... The English, but don't have a lot more to say. Lo tir devo vifarech. So if you have anything to say about that. If a resident alien among you has prospered and your kin being in straits comes under that one's authority and is given over to the resident alien among you or to an offshoot of an alien's family, your kin shall have the right of redemption even after having been given over. Typically, a brother shall do the redeeming or an uncle or an uncle's son shall do the redeeming. Anyone in the family who is of the same flesh shall do the redeeming or having prospered, your formerly impoverished kin may do the redeeming. The total shall be computed with the purchaser as from the year of being given over to the other until the jubilee year. The price of sale shall be applied to the number of years as though it were for a term as a hired laborer under the other's authority. So this is about setting the price for redemption. The redemption price depends on how far we are away from the jubilee year because the owner is losing more labor value if it's a further time from the jubilee. So you would have to pay more to redeem that relative, right, than if jubilee is next week because they're only losing a week of labor then. Is there any evidence that actually this these things happened there on the is, Jubilee year? There is zero evidence that any of this ever happened. There is zero evidence that the sacrificial system, as described, ever happened the way it's described. Somebody calculated how many animals would be involved 
each month at Rosh, at Rosh Chodesh, at Rosh Hashanah, at, you know, whatever, everybody sins, everybody, whatever, takes a vow, then they have to, da, 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 and they calculated, and like the amount of animals that would be involved is completely not possible to, to have been a, a legitimate system where people brought that many bulls. You know, the, a nation that small brought that many bulls is just not, it's just not tenable. So we we have no evidence that any of this ever actually. So we are to take it metaphorically. I, I don't or think historically. So. I don't I mean, think or, so uh, because we're not sure that this wasn't a plan. But it's kind of like saying, okay, America, here's the plan of the founding folk that it's going to be a democracy. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, it's I'm tired. It's things leak out. Um, but right, it's like. Really? So, so here are the, the rules, here are the laws. Uh, is it actually being followed the way, you know, so I know, I, I know this is a glaring difference, but, but it could have been a vision for what they wanted to have happen, whether or not it actually be, became possible ever to implement this. Scholars do not know, but m- many are doubtful. How does orthodoxy deal with this discrepancy? It, what, how does orthodoxy deal with what discrepancy? The fact that it never happened the way it was planned. What, there's no evidence that it didn't happen. Or that it did. Or that it did. They don't care. Do you know, I mean, th- this is the commandment. This is the law. One of the reasons we were kicked out and decimated and the temple was destroyed is because we didn't do what we were supposed to. So anything falls into that lovely, you know, collection of, right, of answers is, well, Okay, well, if scholars prove this never happened, well, there you go. It's just more evidence of why the temple was destroyed because Israel was misbehaving and not doing what clearly is written here that they're supposed to do. Um, all right. So, if many years remain, your kin, your kin shall pay back for the redemption in proportion to the purchase price, and a few years remain until the jubilee um, years, so it shall be computed. Payment shall be made for the redemption according to the years involved. All right, so you get you get the idea that this is a law code, right, that is um, going to go on and on and on and on and on. Um, if not redeemed, that person, along with any children, will go free in the Yovel year. For it is I that the Israelite, to, to me that the Israelites are servants. They are my servants whom I freed from the land of Egypt. I, your God, Yotei all right, and then we get at the end here at Shabbatotai Tishmoru. So my Shabbatot you shall keep, umikdashi tirau ani Adonai, and my sanctuaries you shall guard. Uh, I am Yotevave. So Shabbat and physical, so time and physical space are both to be guarded in terms of being kept. Holy, the times that are supposed to be holy, right, at which we studied, the Moadim, the, the times that are supposed to be holy, as well as the physical space, which was, of course, the sanctuary. So God okay. is, huh? Amy, so God is okay with uh, having them in prison, so to speak, up until the Jubilee year when they should be able to go free? Yes, but remember, they are to be treated as indentured laborers. They are not to be defined as slaves. Okay. So, yes, they can sell themselves to support themselves and their children, 
They can sell themselves into indentured servitude. They are not slaves. And they're, the status, we don't have all the laws of what the difference of status meant or was, but they were not to have the status of slaves. So kind of a dry, <laughs> kind of a dry text. I get it. Um, not the most exciting. Like I said, not the most exciting text. These texts, there's more of these because it talks about land, Shemitah, the land resting. Then it talks about Yovel for the land and the land reverting back to who owned it because the way people get into this situation is that they lose their land or they lose, you know, the ability to use the produce of their land as income and to actually feed their family. And so, um, so it's very connected at this point in the, the legislation that, that it's connected to the land. Um, or, and you can't have flocks if you, and herds, even if you want to talk about semi-nomadic pastoralism, you can't do that without uh, land either. And so, um, th- so it's talking about the ways that people slide into destitution and the way that this particular system imagines addressing that unfairness and injustice that just happened because somebody's crop was in the wrong weather belt and got hit with drought and someone else's did great or they planted the wrong crop and this person planted the right crop and you can't know it's a it's a toss-up the way that that early israel tries to deal with that injustice that's just built into the system is to revert in yovel in the jubilee year to everyone owning their original property yes i have a basic question about freedom Okay. And uh, we were freed from Egypt. Yes. But we then entered another said, we will now behave and believe in the laws of Adnoi. Correct. So that you go from one set of rules that are governing you to another one that allows punishment for not following the laws and everything. So it's just a definition of freedom. Okay. We have chosen to be under another set of laws, Correct. if we will. So are you free as an American? There's a whole bunch of laws that... Uh, are you free as an American? Do you consider yourself free? Within the constraints of the law. Well, yes, but... Uh, right, there are laws. That's what I'm saying, that there... Yeah. That the freedom, but the choice in in leaving Egypt to follow the laws of someone else was a choice. It was not a choice for the folks who are here. Their parents chose that. They didn't choose that. Well, they yes, yes. But did you choose American law? No. No, you did not. You were born here. I was born here. So this, so is while, the case with every single person who would have been dealing with this legislation. They were born an Israelite. This is, these are the laws of ancient Israel. Right. Uh, I'm just saying the freedom is restricted by the laws under which we live. Correct. Even though we may have chosen those laws or not chosen them. Correct. Yeah, that's all. Yes. But so, the, the slavery in Egypt was a physical slavery as far as we know it. And it, I've always looked at it as they were freed, not freed from, but freed to that that the Israelite the story is that the Israelite people were freed to live a life under we consider them holy laws of one sort or another from physical slavery. So, so it's I, not, I don't really def, I don't really define it by physical. I, I think physical. Okay, maybe, but to some extent, it, it's really about who has the power 
to to limit your choices right and so so participants in a society are limited by the agreed upon rules of that society right because without rules what do we have right and and we're going to get to that in a second cuz cuz your point is is well taken about i i don't know that freedom is a helpful word do you know what i mean or a concept because it's like you said freedom from freedom to okay right freedom for me is really not the 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 core concept the core concept is what and how do we make and decide on and what are the laws that we decide to live under so that we can create a just society knowing that people are going to be bad and knowing that circumstances can get bad when you didn't even do anything to deserve it what do we do with that and that kind of for me is the question and and that for me is a qualitative question if we talk about you know right now we'll talk about you know korea you know north korea versus united states right so i it's not that i don't have opinions about which is better i certainly do and within what's better we have lots to criticize right okay i just want to ask in terms of the property rights how this society imagines that after 50 years if everybody reverts back to their original property what is going to happen then because you have lots of people who've done good things with the land uh, and the property that they will get back even may have been ruined over those 50 years have gone up gone down everything just reverts back to the original owner and it's a very strange idea of well what actually would happen in that situation so it so for us yes i agree it's very strange yeah if you think well, of, and we don't know that it ever happened we don't know that it ever happened yeah. for some of the reasons you're saying Mm-hmm. Then what happens to the family that's displaced? Mm-hmm. Oh, what, I mean, you can imagine a million things. Yeah. And, you know, like, what if it's gone? What if it's now part of Egypt? <laughs> you know, so, um, so that's one of the reasons we think this may not have really worked in, in, in reality. Um, but, but as strange as it is for us, if you're putting yourself in the mythic place of each tribe was given land, and, and we know that there were 12 tribes mm-hmm. who were attached to a piece of land. Part of the concern becomes when you become a confederation, how do you protect tribal rights? Mm-hmm. We still talk about that in this country. How do we protect tribal rights to land when you're now a nation with the ability to sell, lose, give over, whatever? But the, the concern in some ways was states, I guess like it's kind of like a state's what do you call it? What is that called? States rights. States rights over the national rights, right? Is is the interest in each state, each tribe, being able to hang on to its title to the land, even should something terrible happen and they have to sell it, yeah. right? So I know it's strange for us, but for them, it would be a lot closer to native tribes' relationship to their land and what you do when... Yeah. Though, you know, when there's a tension between keeping it, but you can't keep it, right. then, then is it fair for it to be taken away from you for the, from the tribe forever? Yeah. It's just hard to Look imagine how well we figured that, that out. would work as a reality. Yeah, that's right. So, well, right. Well, presumably, right. You know, but look at how, we, how much we took, um, you know, that is ours, you know, without, um, 
anyway, without, I can't even put words together. Okay, so I want to I wanna share some more stuff with you. Because, you know, when I'm not terribly excited about the text, I go. It is, it is interesting um, once we start to, like, bust it out, right? Um, so I want you to look at, um, I, I wish Richard Rajay were here, um, because I keep mentioning this tome that he gave me. Well, here it is. So here is the tome Richard, shall we say in quotation marks, gifted me, um, right? <laughs> oh, wait, so they can't. They can't see. Um, so this this tome uh, that that Richard Rajay uh, gifted me, um, Bonagi gift, um, is uh, very long, and it's it is a reinvestigation of all the arguments that people try to make, scholars try to make, uh, archaeologists, cultural anthropologists, physical anthropologists try to make for. Um, a vision of where we come from and how society developed that says essentially it's Rousseau, you know, that there were bands of egalitarian hunter gatherers and they all lived happy, lovely lives and sometimes fought with each other. We hate that, but it happens. Um, and then you start moving towards agriculture. Agricultural means surplus, means permanent attachment to the land, starts to mean ownership, starts to mean cities and towns, starts to mean government, starts to mean corruption, starts to mean control over people, right? And it gets more and more complicated as we go along, as we develop these more and more complex systems called civilization, right? That's a very, very, very short uh way of arguing what Rousseau is arguing. And this has been accepted by cultural anthropology and anthropologists and just kind of as a, well, duh. Um, and these folks, um, David Graeber and David Wengrau, um, came to study, this took 10 years to, to write and publish, to challenge all of that. So the only reason I mention this is because in this commentary on this week's Parsha, um, from the Institute for Spiritual, Jewish Spirituality that was published in the Times of Israel called Of Black Swans and Sabbatical Years, Rabbi Dr. Josh Feigelson quotes my book. He quotes the tome, um, which I find, you know, just sometimes life is just freaky. I was like, wait a minute, are you kidding me right now? Um, but he ties it into this week's Parsha somewhat to what, what we've been talking about that like, we, you know, that we, that we think that our way of making sense of some of this stuff like makes sense. And then someone else's is a little crazy, right? You know, and, um, so I want, I want to look with you, um, at his piece. So it's on the screen over there on the Jewish calendar. We are deep into a sabbatical year, a year of Shemitah. The Torah's expectation for this year and for the larger jubilee cycle in which it occurs might strike us as fanciful, preposterous even. We are commanded not to farm the land, but only to live off whatever naturally grows. That's Shemitah. We are expected to forgive debts and release indentured servants. Every 49 years, we are expected to return the land to its ancestral owners. In short, we are, it seems, expected to overthrow the economic table and start anew. It is nothing short of a radical resetting, a recalibration of society. If this might have seemed difficult to imagine two or 3,000 years ago, it feels even more so now. 
Yet the Torah is not alone in deploying sacred ritual to reconfigure the social order, as David Graeber and David Wengrau demonstrate in their tome, The Dawn of Everything. Societies the world over have done similar things throughout human history. From Native American communities to Neolithic Europe and Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia and beyond, human beings have shown a remarkable propensity to order our societies in many different ways and to consciously reorder them when necessary and desirable. So they're arguing there was a much bigger variety of the ways societies were organized than we give those societies credit for. They are now uncovering um, huge, huge cities that hunter-gatherers attended for sacred rituals several times a year and then left them. Right. So it's not that they were incapable of organizing that way. It's not that they didn't have huge, massive, you know, uh, projects. It's that they didn't choose to make it permanent. They chose a different way of organizing most of the year. Then part of the year they lived in these big cities. I'm sure they had to have a different set of rules governing how they lived then than when they were back in their smaller communities doing whatever they were doing. So they're arguing it's a lot more complicated. Um, then we have given uh, primitive societies, um, and I mean primitive in the scholastic sense, um, credit for, and that we this is a human um, trait, is that we can choose to reorder society. He, he looks at some societies that half the year they're this, like major, major, major monarch who has the power of life and death over everybody, and the other part of the year, everyone's equal and can just laugh at the king and the king's servants and then say, yeah, yeah, right, as if we're not doing one flippin' thing you just do. So that it's not, right, it's not as monolithic as we think, and that we have a lot more flexibility than we have given ourselves as human beings credit for in, in reordering society, even within a society within a same calendar year. Is that what we're seeing every four years? With an election? Yes, with the change in society's aim. I wish. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a fraction of that. Of we accept a reordering to a certain extent. I'm cynical right now enough to suggest that that's not even close to a reconfiguration, right? You know, that all the powers that be, all the institutions, all the whatever are still there, the president and and certain offices change, you know, which which should be a big change, should be the possibility for a, a bigger change. Although with the Supreme Court, I'm afraid we're seeing the impact of a four-year career in politics and what that can do to our country uh, for a really long time. Um, but it, but we're talking about a, they're talking about societies that completely reorganized themselves. Let's say we have a democracy with a president and a Senate, a bicameral legislature and a separate judiciary. They're saying that's not how it happened from December to August. It was a king, an absolute monarch. Then you go back to a bicameral leg. It's like, so right that, that we're having evidence for that. Okay. So, and, and this is, this is Feigelson's point. There is no state of nature, meaning where we originated and we're all in harmony with nature, right, and hunting, gathering. According to Graeber and Wengrell, rather, there are innumerable different ways humans have configured social and political life. From their book, a quote, 
if something did go terribly wrong, and given the current state, it's hard to deny that it did, given look at all the countries and all the inequity and all of the stuckness and all of whatever, they write, then perhaps it began to go wrong precisely when people started losing that freedom to imagine and enact other forms of social existence to such a degree that some now feel this particular type of freedom hardly ever even existed or was barely exercised for the greater part of human history. That's how we tend to look as anthropologists and archaeologists at the vast thing of human history is that people couldn't have possibly had this freedom to completely reinvent everything. That's crazy because of what we're stuck in is what I think they're saying. That perhaps, says Feigelson, is the greatest challenge we face, that we accept that this is the way things are and will be, whatever that way is. We are so invested in the current scheme of things that we discount the possibility that anything could be otherwise. We lose imagination, we lose freedom, we become fatalists. The Torah like other wisdom traditions, invites us to practice a different way of being, the touchstone of which is Yetziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. What was is not what must be. What seems inevitable is not destiny. Just because life seems good right now doesn't mean it's going to remain that way. Just because life looks horrible right now doesn't mean that it will always be so. When we cut ourselves off from the unfolding nature of the world, when we become so invested in a particular way of encountering it, we practice a kind of idolatry. We drive the divine presence from the world. Our calling and mission is to do the opposite, to live with mindful presence, aware of the contingency and ongoing becoming of a world which is constantly recreated anew, aware of our interconnection with all other beings, with the earth, with life itself. That is the practice of Shemitah, the practice of Shabbat. It is the practice that enables us to resist our confirmation bias, our fatalism about climate, and to remain open to the possibility, however long a shot it is, that the unexpected might just. This is from the Times of Israel, um, and it's called Of Black Swans and Sabbatical Years. Uh, he's the president and CEO of IJS, of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, and he wrote this piece for, or it was picked up by whatever, the Times of Israel. Um, and I think it's just a, a brilliant um, a brilliant insight into what Shabbat, Shemitah, and Yovel were really trying to do, which was to say, even if this never happened, even if it was never enacted, here's a dream that we not lose sight of the fact that we can choose to completely reorder this whole thing if we want to, if we want to say it's not just how we're doing it right now. Too many people are stuck and can't get out of poverty. They have no opportunity to get out of it, just given the system. The system is gamed against certain people and for other people. We can change that system. This is what Torah is saying, he's saying, Feigelson is saying, and he's saying that these people are arguing that, that that's always been the case. And people have done it over and over and over, and we're just starting to wake up to how much that was actually done in the ancient world. And we need to not lose sight of our capacity to, to change the way it's ordered. Because if we don't, we know what's going to happen. 
If we accept fatalism, look, if everything were hunky-dory, we could say, why would we want to change it? And that would be fine, but it's not. And we're killing the planet. And we won't be, nobody will be able to live here. Forget poverty, it won't matter. <laughs> no, nobody will be able to survive. And so um, the, the one thing that may save us is exactly this, some crazy notion of a way it could be different, but we're lo- we've lost in so many ways our capacity to believe that that's possible to completely reorder it. And I, that was really helpful for me to, to reclaim Jubilee you know, as an idea, not about this particular system that, cause it is kind of crazy. Um, but the idea that the ancient Israelites were not ready to let go of a vision of an actual reality, an actual way that they might could redo the whole order of things that would make it more just cause they knew it wasn't fair too. They knew the system worked in favor of some and against others who would never be able to climb out of generational poverty or systemic, right, poverty. Um, and so I just wonder what it would mean for us to take that seriously, to, to get rid of our, for a second, fatalism, um, our cynicism, our idea that the way it is is the way it's just always going to be, and to, and to what if we used our energy to, to get creative about, okay, well, how could it be? You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.